So all year we're going through the gospel according to John in a series called Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And today we're finishing, we're finally finishing up John chapter 6. It seems like we've been in John chapter 6 for two months. But uh, with what I think is very, a very relatable teaching on dealing with the hard sayings of Jesus. I think that this is incredibly helpful to us today. Have you ever wondered about that? Like, what do we do with the hard sayings of Jesus? The, the, there are some seriously hard teachings in the Bible, either because they're hard things to understand, it's hard for us to see what's, what's happening, or because the teachings are so countercultural. They're so against what is just unthinkingly taken as true by the world that if we follow these words, if we follow this way of Jesus, we will stick out, and not in a good way. Now, sometimes as Christians, some of these hard sayings, these hard teachings are thrown uh, back at us as evidence of the absurdity of our faith. Other times, the hard sayings of Jesus might make us question the truth of God's word or the goodness of God's way. I think sometimes Christians are hesitant to even admit that we wrestle with certain texts or concepts from the Bible. But we need to be honest about this. Usually, things, when things are kept in the dark, they have way more power over us than when they're brought out into the light. So let me bring this out into the light here to you for myself. I question the Bible all the time. I would encourage you to question the Bible all the time. In our youth group with our students, I say, every time you open this book, you've got to start asking some questions. Now, these aren't questions that are meant to be critical. They're questions that seek to find an understanding of the truth and the goodness of God's word and his way. Listen, if it's true, if this is true, if the Bible is true, if it's truly God's word, then it will hold up under our questioning, right? Well, there came a time in the ministry of Jesus, this makes me feel pretty good as a pastor, to be honest, when many people who had been following him started grumbling about some of the things that he was saying, and it got so bad that many people stopped following him. They turned away from Jesus and went home because they were offended by his teaching. Can you imagine that? Being face-to-face with Jesus, listening to him preach, seeing him minister to people, watching him perform miracles, and saying, I can't, I can't accept this. I won't submit to his way. Well, in this controversy, we learn a lot about what to do with the hard sayings of Jesus and the offense of the gospel. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to John chapter 6, starting with verse 41. And we're going to cover a lot of ground here today, but we'll, we'll stop along the way to try and explain things as we go. John 6, starting with verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Okay, let's pause here for now and just get a little context before we move on. So, 
Jesus had just had the biggest, most impressive day of ministry, I think in the history of the world, the day before. He had fed the 5,000. And then he walked on the water that night and calmed the storm. And then the next day, after this, these signs which reveal the, 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 the provision of Jesus, of what God offers through his son, and the power of Jesus, the power of the creator over his creation, the next day after all of that, they were in the town of Capernaum, a small town at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, which served basically as like home base for Jesus and his public ministry during the first few, few years of his public ministry. That was where the Apostle Peter had a house, I mentioned. It was a, they had lots of family and friend connections around Capernaum. And Jesus was teaching uh, at the synagogue in Capernaum, where, as we saw last week, he made the claim, I am the bread of life. Now, this is a big claim. This was the first of the seven I am statements in John's gospel. And, but in this teaching, Jesus claims to have come down from heaven. He didn't just say, I was born, born and raised, you know. He said, no, I existed before I was born. I came down from heaven. So that, and then he said, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And, I'm sorry, what? Who talks like this, right? It was at these claims that the Jews there in Capernaum, his people, began to grumble about him. Now, to a Jewish person in John's day, probably many of the people he was writing to, or to anyone today who's familiar with the Old Testament stories of the people of Israel, the word grumble would immediately remind you of the story of the exodus of Israel from captivity in Egypt. Because it was several times during the exodus when God was leading his people through the wilderness before they got to the promised land that ancient Israelites started to grumble against Moses and even against God. And I don't, so I don't think it's an accident at all that John uses this language and he refers to the Jews as, as if referring to ancient Israel. In, in the book of Exodus, specifically in chapter 16, right after God had miraculously provided bread from heaven, okay, the manna from heaven, the people began to grumble because they had bread but no meat. It's like... The Lord is miraculously sustaining your life in the desert, and you're complaining about the menu. Okay, well here, Jesus had just performed a miracle of feeding people with, what is that again? Bread from heaven. And people start to grumble against him the very next day. Well, with Jesus, the people don't understand they don't understand his teaching. They don't understand how Jesus could say that he had come down from heaven. They were like, we, we know his family. Some of these people in Capernaum, there's just a couple miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up and his stepfather Joseph had a carpentry business. Jesus might have done some work for them over the years as a carpenter. They were like, we know his family. We know where he grew up. How can he make this claim to be this special unique person, much less make what would be considered the blasphemous claim that he was in fact equal with God. So he wasn't receiving a super warm welcome there in Capernaum. But also, 
this, friends, this is evidence that Jesus himself was making the claim to be God. And it wasn't something that was made up hundreds of years later by his followers, but this was a source of controversy and contention in the time of Jesus. So it was getting tense in the synagogue that day. As Jesus kept talking, people kept getting more and more upset. Now, will Jesus walk back this claim? See, reading the room, right? Like, the, it's starting to shift against me. Uh, maybe I should walk back this claim. Well, look what he says in verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Jesus taught. <laughs> Everyone who has heard the Father has learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, this is important, listen, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread of life that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Boy, that's a good question. <laughs> so not only does Jesus not walk back the claim to have been sent down from heaven, but he doubles down saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Then he extends this metaphor of bread by saying, the bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, and whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now, this is clearly a metaphor. It's clear from the text. But the people go from grumbling to arguing sharply. This is, they're ready to fight. Because they take him literally. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus actually explains the metaphor by saying, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Now Jesus obviously isn't advocating for people to eat him, like cannibalism. That is clearly against the Old Testament law. But he's using this picture of eating the bread of life as an analogy of faith. But he seems to have lost the room. So, will he now, now that he's doubled down, try to walk back the claim a little bit? Or is he going to double down again? Let's go to verse 53 and find out. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He doubled down. That's what happened. <laughs> Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real or true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. 
but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Okay. <laughs> Jesus doesn't shy away from controversy. He doubles down yet again, adding drinking his blood to the metaphor. If Jesus had a PR firm, they would quit at this point. <laughs> if the people didn't understand the meaning of eating his flesh, they certainly weren't going to understand the meaning of drinking his blood. But again, there's no way that Jesus meant people to take this saying literally. It's clearly against the Old Testament law to drink blood. So what, we have to ask the question, what is Jesus intending by using this metaphor? What is the meaning of this teaching? Well, he's teaching that just as food and drink are necessary for us to have physical life, so in the same way, we need God to provide us not just what we need to sustain our physical life, but we need to look to his provision to receive what we need for spiritual nourishment through the person and work of Jesus. And that will lead to real life, spiritual life, eternal life. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, this language of the flesh and blood of Jesus, although normally it's body and blood of Jesus, might remind you of the institution of the Lord's Supper or of communion, where the bread and the cup represent the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, Jesus uh, won't institute this practice until the night before his death on the cross. But here, and this is perhaps a year before the cross, he is teaching the meaning behind the institution of the bread and the cup. This is the meaning of communion. That even today, when we look to the Son and believe in Him, we will have eternal life. And trust the promise, we can trust the promise of Jesus to raise us up on that last day. But the point of this passage isn't to start the practice of communion, but it's to help us understand what communion remembers and celebrates. That Jesus is the bread of life. Sent from heaven. To nourish us and give us life by faith in his powerful name. So there, all the cards are on the table. How do the people respond? Not well. Spoil it. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is God's word. Wow, so heavy passage. You feel the weight of this? On hearing this hard teaching, rather than humbly asking Jesus for more information, Jesus said, we don't understand what you're saying here. Can you help us? Instead of that, many people who had been following Jesus turned back and no longer followed him. Now, these were people who had seen the power of God through the ministry of Jesus. They had seen the signs. They had heard him teach and maybe even knew him from Nazareth as he grew up there. But despite all of that, when his teaching was hard for them to accept, when they didn't understand and they couldn't accept what he was saying, they walked away from him. And this would have been, this must have been so hard for Jesus to experience. Because remember, when, when Jesus, as, as he looked at the crowds, do you remember how he felt? His heart was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. How do you think he felt as he watched them fade away from him? If I were Jesus, I probably would have quit. After two major miracles the day before, and with so many thousands of people following him, peak popularity and influence of his ministry, I'm sure it would have been tempting for Jesus to look at all of this so-called ministry fruit as a measure of his own value and worth. But then Jesus preaches one sermon that manages to offend almost everybody, and almost everybody decides to stop following him. Unfollowed, blocked, done. Does that mean that his ministry failed? And yet none of this surprises Jesus one bit. He doesn't fall into the trap of defining himself by the numbers. John says that he knew from the beginning which of them would believe and truly follow and who would walk away from him and even who would betray him in the end. His friend, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, a man that Jesus spent years of his time and life with. They lived together. They ministered together. He taught Judas. They fished together. They ate together. He even washed his feet in the end. But Jesus knew that no one can come to him unless the Father enables them to come. And Jesus fully and implicitly trusted his Father. He models that every step of the way. And so as a result, he knew his, the fruit of his ministry wasn't about the numbers probably the week after in the synagogue in Capernaum. But it still must have been tough for him, I have to imagine. Jesus had loved, really loved these people and served them. And to see them walk away 
from him was to see people that he loved walk away from the only ultimate source of life and love and joy and peace and all of the fruit of the Spirit. And in this moment, Jesus turns to the 12, his closest followers, and asks them if they want to leave too. Boy, that's a, that's a gutsy question. And as usual, Simon Peter speaks his mind, but his confession is good. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is saying, Lord, where else can we go to find the hope and the truth and the life that you offer? Only you, Lord, only you have the words of eternal life. Only you have the gospel, the good news of who God is and what God has done. Only you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only you are the source of living water and the bread of life. Only you are the Lord and the Savior of all. Only you are the Holy One of God. Now, Peter isn't always pointed in the right direction, but he nails it here. And I think that his confession, even though he certainly didn't have as full of an understanding as he will after the cross and the resurrection, I think it still would have been helpful and probably encouraging to Jesus to hear the confession of his friend. Now next week, we'll continue to consider this, the unique theme and the unique authority of the teaching ministry of Jesus. Jesus, our teacher, our rabbi, our instructor, the one who leads the way that we follow. Before today, I'd like to end our time by thinking about how we can deal with the hard sayings, the potentially offensive teachings of Jesus. I'll give you two thoughts here. First, this is not a new problem for us modern people, okay? <laughs> Questioning God's word didn't start in 2020. God's word has always been challenging or even downright offensive to some. Just as people grumbled against God in the Old Testament, right, 3,500 years ago, and against the teaching of Jesus 2,000 years ago on, in that day in Capernaum, God's word has always been challenging or even downright offensive to people. It's really the problem that has broken everything. But the uncomfortable truth is that the message of the gospel is offensive. Now, we are not, as Christians, called to be offensive or try to offend, but the message, the basic message of the gospel says we needed Jesus to die for us because we were hopelessly lost on our own and we could do nothing to save ourselves. It, that's a humbling message. I think everyone kind of wants to believe that, that they can do more good than evil and that God ought to give us credit for that. But the gospel says, no, that's not how it works. The standard is perfection and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody needs Jesus. 
But even if you believe that you might need a savior, then there's the ethical teaching of the Bible and what God says is right and wrong. So whether it's the ethical teaching on human gender, that God made us male and female, or human sexuality, that the only appropriate context for sexuality is within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, or of the requirement of forgiveness. How many times should we forgive? 70 times seven. And the requirement, the command of Jesus to love all people, even our enemies, or the calling to care for the poor and those in need, regardless of how they got in that predicament, there are many hard sayings in the Bible. And sadly, just as it happened in that day in Capernaum, many people today walk away from the faith because of these hard sayings. I've had dear friends whom I love who have rejected Jesus, at least for now, because they're unwilling to accept his way. Maybe you've had friends or family members who have done this as well. They were unwilling to submit to God's word and God's way when it conflicted with their word and their way. Now I understand this because Jesus and his way is a hard way. It's a way that includes suffering. It's a way that requires dying. It's a way of the cross. The way of Jesus demands that you lose your life in order that you may find it. And we stand under the authority of God and his word. We do not stand over it. And so here's the second thought. The way of Jesus is the only way that leads to life. John's gospel is all about finding life in Jesus' name. This is real life. This is eternal life. This is abundant life. This isn't just like a little bit better life here and now, like a little bit better marriage for you or a little bit more agreeable, peaceful family situation or a little more productive and financially well off in your career, in your workplace. This, it's not just a slight improvement. This is being born again, born anew, and born into a life that will never end. So when our circumstances today or a particular teaching of the Bible is hard for us to understand or to deal with, the Christian must say, as Peter said, Lord, where else would we go? You and only you have the words of life. There is no viable plan B, friends. There is no other religion or philosophy. There's no other way that leads to a life of love, joy, and peace. So today, when, not if, but when we wrestle with the truth or the goodness of an aspect of God's word, I want to encourage you to bring those questions, bring those doubts, bring your wrestling to Jesus. If he's real, as I believe that he is, and if his way is the only way that leads to life, then he can handle our questions. He can handle our doubts. And in his timing, and according to his perfect wisdom, he will reveal to us the truth and the goodness of his words and his way.
Let us pray. Father, I pray for help in understanding your words. I pray for help. If there if there's teaching in the Bible, Lord, and, and maybe it's a metaphor and we're taking it literally or, or there's something that you want us to do and we don't want to do it, you're leading us one way and we, our, our heart's desire is to start grumbling about it. Lord, would you forgive us and would you help us? Would you lead us and guide us? Would you reveal to us what is true by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to see the wisdom that underlies your word, would you help us to see your great big heart of love for us that underlies the truth of your word? And Father, would you help us be full of faith, willing to submit to your authority and willing to follow your way all the way into the age to come, an age of life and love and joy and peace, a, 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 an age of freedom from sin and death, an age of, of beauty and truth, an age where we can walk with you and see you face to face. Lord, we cannot wait for that day. And we trust you until then, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.